Welcome to... Hey! Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name is Alex Gruskin, and joining me back on the podcast, it is my doubles partner, partner in crime, and I'm embarrassed because he can now see the smile on my face because we added a little live video into the mix during this podcast. It is everyone's favorite Great Shot Podcast co-host, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman. Maxie, hey! Great shot. Dude, the fact that we haven't done this until now is ridiculous. Uh, Well, I will say we used to be in person. Right. Right? So it used to be a little bit easier because I could always For the episodes that we didn't do in person, the fact that this wasn't like our first thought was (laughs) just pure stupidity. My counterpoint to that would be you didn't do any episodes when you weren't in person, so I don't think we're actually missing anything. You know, still, this is a revelation. I don't know what to do with my hands. Well, hey, the fact that it's a podcast. The fact still. that the first time we are doing it is when I'm back, even though you did some of these with other people on the phone, which, first of all, I feel a little betrayed by, but is just a <laughs> testament to you needing me. So. Look, that's that's a very fair point. But one of the people I did turn to, a guy who might have just passed Matt Stokowiak for third all-time in Great Shot podcast appearances. It is former Denison superstar, Cracked Rackets writer, and the man from Ireland, at least allegedly, James Foster McDonald. Jamie, hey, great shot. Hey there. Well, I mean, now that I get to see you in person as well, can I just say, I, I still can't believe, I feel like this is my, what a grandparent feels like when they FaceTime with their grandkid. They're like, oh my God, what do I do? Like, it's the smiles, it's the overall, I'm glad we're going to get to... It's overwhelming. <laughs> to say the least, I, but you know, we've harped on that enough. And you've never learned how to use current technology. Oh, Luddite. Wow, you graduate college and you use big words like Luddite. That's very impressive. Good for you, man. Yeah, that's graduating high school, uh, my man. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. But, you know, before we get into today's event, which we will be covering the Atlanta ATP 250 tournament, which has just passed our first event in the U.S. Open Series, I do have to start with a little bit of housekeeping. If you haven't, go check out all of our coverage at crackedrackets.com. You know, so many excellent writers contributing on there. We've got Alex Gornett talking still about you know foreign players in college tennis and how they've contributed to each roster and what the breakdown is. It's a really fascinating series. Uh, we've got Ryan Cardiff with his weekly updates on the Futures and Challenger circuit. Matt Stokowiak writing whatever it is that comes to Matt's mind on any given week. I believe this week he talked about shortening the matches, right? And I, I don't think I'm mistaken. I think yeah, that was right. his go-to article. And and definitely an interesting debate to have. Maybe something we'll throw into today's changeover chat. Of course, we got Anna Bright covering the WTA wildcard challenge for the U.S. Open, and then our guy Parson Amati covering the WTT. So you know, so you know, go check all of that coverage out. Obviously, follow our social media accounts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Rothman, you just joined the Twitter sphere. Is that correct? I did. It's really weird, and I haven't really like gotten addicted to it yet. I was- I feel like that's like I'm pretty sure you've gone radio silent. Yeah, I, I get a lot of notifications from Great Shot Podcast, and I'm like, who the fuck are these guys? <laughs> well, it's not you. I'll tell you yeah. that. Usually, it is. <laughs> Usually, it, it is, is me. definitely me. <laughs> yeah. So you know, make sure you go follow Rothman on Twitter. What is it at Max Rothman? Yeah, it's something like that. If you really want to follow me, I'm not going to post anything, but sure, I'll take the follows. <laughs> That was very enthusiastic. That's what I, I wanted to hear. That's how I wanted to start this podcast. And of course, you know, be on the social media accounts if you haven't. You're obviously listening to a Great Shot podcast episode now, but. 
go subscribe to our other podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast. Rate them, five-star ratings only. Write a review up there. You know, any questions you have for us, feel free to reach out to us because we would love to interact with you, the fans. Uh, we've had some fun interactions with the pa- in the past and with all of the tennis going on. We'd love to hear the topics you guys want to talk about. So, you know, be sure to get us in the loop. Uh, we, again, we'd love to correspond with you as much as possible. But, okay, with that... Let's talk about this Atlanta ATP event because, you know, Newport does happen in between Wimbledon and the start of the U.S. Open series, but Newport's an event on grass, and by this point in the year, to be honest, I'm done with grass tennis. I don't want to spend another second covering it. So Atlanta really is the kickoff event for that U.S. Open series, and being that all of these matches are in America, a lot of times we see young American players getting wild cards. We see a lot of young American players in this event. You know, you look back at last year, we had guys like Hyun Chung, Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, Ernesto Escobedo, all making runs at the Atlanta event. I think Chris Eubanks actually may have won a few matches there as well. And then, of course, two years ago, Riley Opelka made a semifinal. So we have seen a lot of these young Americans using the you know the US Open series as a springboard to you know assert themselves on the ATP tour and get themselves closer to that top 100 and you know Rothman you look at some of these qualifying results matches we're not even going to break down but I do want to mention them you have number 1 seed in the first round Dennis Kula taking out JP Smith in three sets Jason Jung taking out Chris Eubanks blue, a match baby. we could have seen last week in Winnetka exactly always go blue uh, you have Noah Rubin taking out Evan King, 4-4. Four and four. And then you have Tommy Paul taking out Bernard Tomic, 6-3, 4-6, I mean, all of those matches could have been finals of a challenger. And instead, you know, their first round qualifying, it's, it's such a slog. And I guess my, my opening question, I want to go to you, Rothman. In terms of if you're a young American and you see how big of an uphill climb it is to get through qualifying... I mean, do you prefer the wild card in the, you know, would you rather have gotten a wild card into the event or would you rather, like Noah Rubin in this case, earn your keep through qualifying for this tournament? Well, first of all, you took one line straight out of my mouth. The fact that these matches could have been finals of a challenger. That was my line, but I'll, I'll let you have that one. Um, secondly, <laughs> I think, you know, there's, you can look at it two ways. One, you've got, uh, the side where it says I'd rather you know go through qualifying, earn my spot. But not only that, you've spent three matches getting used to the courts, getting used to the atmosphere, and just kind of getting a rhythm. And then you go into that first round if you make it, and you've already had a couple matches under your belt. So there's that side which is great. There's the other side where you know you come in with a wild card, you're already for sure guaranteeing your spot, and you're fresh. Um, I think personally, I'd probably rather just be fresh, take the wild card, make sure I'm in there. But um, if you think you can guarantee your spot through qualities, that might be the move. Well, I think you look at a guy like Noah Rubin, you know, yeah, he's in the top 150 now, but still to get himself acclimated to that level of tennis, you know, he takes out Evan King and Jason Jung, who happen to be former Wolverines, so not exactly the best turn. You know, the (laughs) Demon Deacons are stomping all over our Wolverines, not sure how I feel about that. But, you know, for a guy like him who didn't, it, it seems like he hasn't had that many matches on the year. I think for him, it's very beneficial to get your bearings under you in qualifying. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like Dennis Kudlow or Tommy Paul, who both have draining first round qualifying matches, and then, of course, lose their second round matches in qualifying, don't get into the main draw. So I think you're right. I think obviously you'd prefer, you know, the wild card, sure entry, get that out. Uh, 
that nice prize check for making the main draw. But yeah, there is definitely something to getting your bearings under you. It's a path that's, you know, the more difficult path, certainly. And so perhaps that's why, you know, when we talk about our first round match, we will start with a guy like Noah Rubin. But before we do that, as always, have to give a special shout out to the Americans who got main draw wins in this event. You look at John Isner, Donald Young, Francis Tiafo, Ryan Harrison, Taylor Fritz, and of course, again, the guy we're going to start with, Noah Rubin. So, you know, Fligner, cue the applause for those guys. So yeah, overall, Americans go 12-7, and seven, including qualifier Noah Rubin's 6-3, 6-4, first-round win over fellow qualifier and another young player on tour, a guy who's 22 now, but a guy we saw take out Federer in the first round of Miami. That's a young Australian, Tanasi Kokonakis. Um, Jamie, I haven't let you get a word in yet, so we'll start with you for this breakdown. You know, Kokonakis, again, might be, yeah, we mentioned him last episode when I mentioned Ruben took out the cock, and so, you know, we're not going to use that as the title back-to-back, but still, shout-outs to Ruben. Uh, but you, you look at the things, you know, both of these guys can do on the court. What stuck out for you for Noah Rubin? You know, what allowed him to have success against a guy like Kakanakis, who, you know, known for the big serve, the big ground strokes? Yeah, well, and first of all, I just want to say that this match was just incredibly entertaining to watch, especially from the ground, you know. Um, just like, you know, not only just the big highlight points, but it just seemed like every other point there was some long, grueling rally that ended up with a, with an unreal shot to finish it. Um, and it, so for me, this was really entertaining from start to finish, and six three six four doesn't really do it justice in my mind. Uh, that being said, I think, you know, Ruben does a couple of just, you know, sort of key things a little bit better. First of all, I think he he protects his serve a little bit better. Um, you know, second serve points, if you break, go down into the stats a little bit, you know, he wins 65% of his second serve points, Kakanakis 48%. You know, that's not a massive gap, but it's pretty significant when, you, uh, when you're talking these margins. And then you go break points. They have about the same number of opportunities, but Ruben gets it done twice. Kakanakis doesn't get a break. And so that's really the match for me. So it's really just a few points here and there. It's Ruben protecting his second serve a little better and, you know, capitalize on his chances and that's the match but you know i don't want to understate how fun this one was to watch this was probably my favorite uh match of the tournament honestly yeah i totally agree with you there and and i think you know i I think that the the break points are a huge component but i think one of the things that ruben did super well here which i don't always see from him uh, was being a little more aggressive and taking some balls down the line. I, I think if you could find the the winner to unforced error ratio, it would be in the in the very high positives for Ruben here. Um, and he won a lot of big points with backhand down the line winners, a few forehand down the line winners. And for someone who doesn't have a huge game, uh, you, you really need that. And and we'll talk about it in the next round. But uh, I think that was a huge reason why he actually lost to Kyrgios in, in the second round. So a couple of points on that. One, to Jamie's point about the second serve point difference, 65% versus 48%, like you mentioned, is a drastic difference, something that sticks out. But then you look at the actual numbers, you know, Ruben goes 17 of 26, so he wins 17 second serve points versus Kokonakis, who goes 13 of 27, but still, you know, wins 13 second serve points. So only a four-point gap there. Not the biggest of spreads. So, you know, for me, that's not the stat that I'm going to hone in on in this one. For me, it's Ruben f***ing treat out of his mind. I have so never well. seen Noah Ruben play like it. He didn't miss a single ball down the line. And like credit to him because Kokonakis is not the most natural mover. Has a game that really reminds me. Actually, here's one for you, Rothman. Do you think Kokonakis plays similarly to Ernesto Escobedo? Oh, that's interesting. So I, I thought you weren't going to 
say Ernesto. Um, I actually thought you might say like even, <laughs> even curios esque. Um, oh, that's so. See, but that's so fucking racist. I'm not oh, going to just say the Australians are both alike. So racist. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. I mean, big forehand, backhand is you know they're not fantastic. Um, doesn't move great. Yeah, uh, it's it's similar. So counterpoint to that, uh, I think the back. I think he has very compact, it is. It, stable strokes. I think when he, exactly okay. So when he can set his body, I think his strokes look really nice. I agree with you. I think he can get jammed with pace. Not the most natural mover. Kind of falls back on a lot of his forehands. But to his credit, you know, Ruben took return because Kokonakis does have a big serve, as you mentioned, and Ruben was taking serves inside of the baseline, you know, really holding his ground. And, you know, the second Kokonakis floated a ball even a little bit, Ruben tried to change directions and go down the line. You know, he never hit a ball to the same side more than two balls in a row. He kept everything out of the middle third. Again, I just think Ruben played out of his ass in this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ruben just looked on fire pretty much at all points in this match. You know, he was taking so many balls inside the baseline, cutting off angles and just ripping them down the line. Um, you know, a lot of times I don't think Kalkanakis even knew what hit him. Uh, and so, yeah, it was phenomenal to see him play this well. But, you know, can he keep it up? I hope so. I hope this gives him some momentum. But, now, like you said, this was absolutely just a display by Noah Ruben. The last thing I'll say about this match, and the one thing that gives me, you know, a little, I'm reluctant to be high, too high on the Ruben upside despite this result, you know, both he and Kakanakis, they only came to the net under, you know, the most absolute circumstances. If there was nothing for them to do, then to move forward, then they would do it. Or if they had an easy overhead, they would put it away. So still, you know, as well as Ruben did, uh, hitting balls down the line, moving forward, taking balls early. You still would have to like to see him move forward and hit more volleys in this match. I don't think I saw him hit a single, you know, volley in this match, and that's something that you know, despite Coconut, you know, him having uh, many chances on the return games against Kokonakis, but he's not able to take returns early and then move in behind it. Players who move a little bit better than Kokonakis, you know, those returns will only bring the point to neutral, as opposed to in this match when Ruben was able. to to take the offensive. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really think that, you know, Ruben always can can work on moving in a little more, hitting some more volleys, but uh, super fun match to watch. There were also a lot of other really good matches in the first round. You had Taylor Fritz taking down Ram Kumar at Monathon, 4-4. Four four. We had Francis Tiafo taking down Marius Kopel, 4-4. Four four. Uh, Harrison took down James Duckworth in a, in a pretty intense three-set match. Uh, 4-6, 7-6, 6-1. And then uh, another really fun match. Well, Maybe not a super fun match, but uh, it seemed close. Donald Young and Evo Karlovich went 2-6-7-6-7-6 with D. Young coming out on top. Uh, well, I do I do want to talk about that match real quick. And we don't have to talk about the tactics because God knows we're all done with big servers after Wimbledon. So not as much the specifics as Donald Young, including qualifying results, including his results on the Challenger Tour, as well as the ATP Tour. And I think this actually includes his win in Cincinnati as well. 6-17 and 17 on the year. He has fallen outside of the top 200. You know, Donald Young was never a guy with huge weapons. And so for him, physicality was always going to be a big part of his game but still six and 17 Rothman you know that is that is not good no it's it's that's Arthur Osga senior that's Arthur Osga senior year of club tennis bad oh god you're gonna you're gonna make it that bad 
I mean, it's as shitty it's as, as it comes. But the point is, yeah, so a lot of interesting matches in this one. Um, but anyways, there, there are a few yeah. other matches that uh, were, were pretty entertaining in the first round. We had Alex de Menard taking down Hercatch. I think I'm definitely botching that name. It's 167. That's a fellow Polish player, yeah. so, you know, don't be rude. Uh, and he's he's lost that match, 167676. So kudos to de Menard, who's... Uh, yeah. The curse of six one. Oh, can I just say real quick, I don't know if you guys heard this on the last, but I'm sorry to keep cutting you off. You know I You love doing that. I love listening to yourself talk. Yeah, was, I'm used to it. You're back now, so it's a big deal. But I want to get both of your takes on this. Uh Jamie, you were on this pod last week when it came up at Rothman. You I don't know if you've heard Fligner's, you know, case of the six one where you win the first set six one, you're guaranteed to lose the match. I think this happened to a couple of players this week and you know, friend of the podcast Jonathan Kelly was making some jokes about it on Twitter, but you look here, Dimanuer, he, you know, loses the first set 6-1, wins the next 2-7-6. Is there any validity to the curse of 6-1? I mean... I don't think so. Uh, go ahead, Jamie. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, yeah, you see it and it's funny, so you're like, oh, what a f- <laughs> you lost 6-1. I don't know. Like, you won the first set 6-1, lost the match. Oh, but, like, you don't talk about the matches that are 1-0. Uh, shout out to you, <laughs> um, you know, it's like... I don't know. It's just different. Like, you, you don't talk about it when you see someone get absolutely waxed, but then if someone does come back, you're like, well, hey, there's this. And so, yeah, it does happen. And you could probably try and make some sort of, like, psychological, like, oh, there's a letdown or it's a reset, whatever. But, like, at the same time, there's so many matches that are done in, like, one and three that you don't talk about. And you just talk about the fun ones where you lose the first set and you end up winning. Yeah, I mean, I think – I used to think that this was, like, a junior thing that happened where, like, there was some kid who was just nervous in the first set and – Played terribly and then comes back and wins the next two, but I, I I might be agreeing with it soon if I start seeing it more. I mean, I think we've seen it with some top guys where they just come out a little slow and then they're like, all right, wait a second, I'm way better than this guy. I'm just gonna come out and, and whoop him. Um, okay, we have granted this theory way more than it deserves. It's not a thing. I'm just gonna come out. And all right, it's not. We, we can it's, argue this. You, yeah. We can argue this later. We've got some more matches to it's, talk about. The, the fir- not a thing, but sure. All right, we'll, we'll get back to this. We've got some more matches to talk about. Second round, really fun match. Um, I want to talk a bit about this match first because I, I thought it was super entertaining. The Chung versus Fritz second round match. Okay, counterpoint, you're avoiding Baghdadis Tiafo because in the second set, Baghdadis won it 6-1. So, you know, Six-two. curse of the 6-1. Not a thing. But, so, oh, so- 6-1. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Um, but so, yes, go on. So let's talk about it. Yeah. So this was a fun match, in my opinion, of all the second round matches, highest quality tennis. Uh, I think this was, what, you're going to disagree with me already? <laughs> you can see me making a face. Look, I've really enjoyed just having you back so I can cut you off. Um, It was the best, best, level, it was of the best level of tennis. You, I really don't think you, you can know what? argue with me there. You're right. I, sh- I shouldn't have made a face. Yeah, I was thinking up. about, I really liked Harrison Chung, and then I thought Harrison Chung was the highest level of tennis I saw all tournament. Well, that was quarterfinals. If you're saying just, no, I realized that. I realized the premise was just second round. And so, yes, I agree with you. I thought, you know, to Fritz's credit, and maybe this is something Chung does wrong, Chung keeps a lot of the balls deep in. But they're all in the middle third of the court. And if you can't expose Fritz's movement, can't get him going side to side, I mean, he can rip ground strokes with the best of them. And so, you know, this match, I guess, to me, the biggest development was seeing how Fritz's pace, even against a guy like Chung, it, you know, it disrupts their flow. It really makes his opponent uncomfortable, I guess. 
for you, Max, were you impre- despite the loss here? You've got to be impressed with Fritz's performance, right? Yeah, no. So what I was gonna say was that this was a match for me that actually was very promising for Taylor. Um, I think you saw that he really was controlling a lot of points and classic thing that we've said multiple times, but what lost him this match were his volleys. I think, I think if he were comfortable, Oh my gosh, I know. I'm just saying it's incredible. You go to Thailand for six months and he still hasn't learned how to volley. I know it's crazy. I I thought by the time I'd come back, something would have changed and it hasn't. Uh, but seriously, I mean, there were a lot of crucial points where Fritz had opportunities and, really just blew it. Um, I, I think there was a, a really good save, I got to say, at 1-1 for Fritz. But at 3-all, he had two very easy breakpoint opportunities. One where it was just an easy volley that he uh, just kind of put not in like the, a good position in the court. And another one where he just really had a chance to rip it back in and, and had control of the point. So, you know, he, he had the opportunities, even though his breakpoint ratio uh, was you know similar to, to Chung, it it didn't reflect because he really had better opportunities than Chung did. Well, you know, even beyond him moving to the net, my question for you, Jamie, is, you know, we how often are we going to talk about Fritz's athleticism? You know, he's not able to move side to side as well as a Tiafo or a Tommy Paul. But still, I think Fritz's athleticism is getting better. It's just, to me, his footwork is still atrocious. What do you think about that, Jamie? Do you think as an athlete he has improved? Especially when he first came onto the scene, it was just like it just looked horrible. And granted, it's still not pretty to look at now. Like it's it's definitely an improvement. And one of the things I noticed when I was watching this match is like he really did look a lot more comfortable just general ground stroking the ball than I've seen. Absolutely, in the past, which I, I think is a really good upside. Um, however, I mean we've talked about the volleys enough. We don't need to go over that. Obviously, huge area needing improvement in his game. Um, but you know, just to like expand this out to the whole match, to me this was. This was a case of just like a pretty, like, I don't know, just like a routine match in a tournament. You know, it was high quality from the ground, I think, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's a four and six. It's a tight match. John gave himself some more opportunities on break, for break points. He ended up winning. Like, to me, it's a pretty simple equation for this uh, for this match. And, and while the quality was high for me, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of what you expect to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I've got one new kind of thing that I saw from Fritz, uh, and then a hot take <laughs> to give you. So one thing that I saw that was different, um, and not necessarily different, but just something that I noticed more, was that Fritz a lot of times gets caught off balance after he serves. I think, and, and this does tie to the athleticism slash, you know, needing of work on his footwork, uh, but a lot of times I saw anytime Chung hit a, a relatively deep return, or even just a return that was hit hard, uh, you saw Fritz off his back foot, or just not really ready, um, and whether that's a, a discipline thing or a, a footwork thing, I'm not sure. The other thing that I want to say that's a hot take, I think the way Fritz could choose to take his game uh, would be to go more to a Kyrgios-esque game where he... What? What, what does that mean? So, so I think something that Kyrgios does is he kind of just gives up on his footwork at times, and maybe that's just like a choice he makes. <laughs> <laughs> but I seriously think that Kyrgios just, like, decides, all right, on this point, like, I'm going to take control of it and I'm going to hit huge balls or I'm just going to grind it out and, and hope that this goes well. But I think that for the most part, Kyrgios says, all right, I'm going to have to win this match by hitting big balls. And I think that Fritz too often tries to grind. So my counterpoint to that is 
I get what you're saying. Fritz needs to be more aggressive. He, but to me, the the fix is not you know be curious ass and take some points off and just go big. The fix is move forward behind an earlier forehand. You, you know, to me, the point that being aggressive really summarized this match. Yeah, sure. But the point to me that summarizes this match perfectly, it was one all, 15-30, you know, early on in the match, and they're both going side to side. I mentioned this earlier. I think the Chung forehand backswing is a little bit big. I think you can get jammed with pace, and, you know, he or he has to play so far behind the baseline that he's giving up a ton of space to his opponent. Um, and I think when we look in the Harrison-Chung match later on in this event, I think Ryan Harrison really did a good job of targeting the Chung forehand. But for Taylor, you know, in, on that 15-30 point, he has three chances to go big with inside-in forehands or a down-the-line forehand after he went inside-in because he had Chung on the move. And instead of moving in after the first one or instead of moving in after the second one, he doesn't move in. And instead, you know, Chung gets that ball, gets Fritz stretched. And again, if you can get Fritz stretched, you're going to get a short ball. And so eventually, you know, Chung was able to draw that short ball out of him. He's able to put Fritz back on the defensive. And in the end, if Fritz moves forward, yeah, that point is slower. And so instead, if Fritz is able to move forward, and again, Fritz is able to serve himself out of so many jams. So I agree with you. He's able to be play a riskier tennis, particularly on his own service games. But to me, the not, the solution is not to be more recklessly aggressive. It's to move forward and you know, I don't know if you if he even can become a better volleyer, but that's something he's got to keep working on. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, maybe I didn't explain this well. Maybe it's the beer. You maybe did not. It was the, the Cabo Cantina <laughs> before the podcast. Who knows? But uh, Jamie made a face when I was saying that, so I, I want him to to give his take. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm honestly just going to go ahead and, and backtrack and take back what I said. I don't think what I said made sense. <laughs> I, I will say the match was fun to watch. I think it was a upside and something that you know was kind of positive to see in Fritz's game. He's moving in the right direction. So yeah, it, I guess it, after that conversation, it makes sense to talk about Kyrgios and Ruben now in their second round match, which was a very interesting match, I think, to watch. Uh, I think if you saw the first set, you might have said, oh, this could potentially be a slaughter of Ruben, uh, especially in the very beginning. I, I was watching this and saying, oh no, this is about to go downhill quick. And then things really turned around and Alex is giving me a face and I want to hear what you So my counterpoint, my exact counterpoint is it was a blowout. Like this was not a good match at all. And Kyrgios, like Kyrgios was literally just the 
10% better version of Kokonakis to where, you know, all of those Ruben first serves, and I really liked his slice out wide. I like his kick out wide. I think he's got a lot of serving motions and serving spins and tools available to him, but Kyrgios was toying with him for uh, the first set I and a could, half. I could not he, agree more. It, it was ridiculous. Like, it literally looked like a pro and a junior out there. I think Kyrgios was just like, I am so much better than this guy, and I'm just going to let him make mistakes, and when I have the chance, I'm just going to blow him out of the water with a huge forehand. It, it seemed pretty dominant from him. I, I want to give you a chance to say something as well, Jimmy, but to me, this stat that sticks out, you look at the serving points won for Kyrgios. He wins 86% of his first serve points, 78% of his second serve points, You know, loses eight points on serve on the match in total, hits 15 aces against one double fault. I mean, again... Kyrgios, it was funny to me because in the stands you saw Kokonakis and Tomic, so you know Kyrgios was playing for a crowd, and when he does that, he plays his best tennis. But still, the the disparity in level between these two guys was so evident from the get-go, right, Jamie? Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, it was just kind of sad to watch, honestly, because you could tell what was going to happen from the start. Um, I think the only hope that Ruben had was that Kyrgios would either tank himself out of the match or somehow get DQ'd. Um, but <laughs> honestly, like, his serve is good enough, and he knew going in that it was going to be good enough and big enough that he could just relax on every return point. I mean, you saw him. He was just, like, chipping float slices. He wasn't giving him any pace. He didn't even look like... He was literally walking the balls. I mean, like, it was evident that he was just, you know, puffing his chest and saying, like, I am so much better than you that this will not be competitive no matter what. Which is kind of depressing, but, like... I mean, that's also kind of classic Kyrgios. Like, I think in this match more than ever, it almost... Like, I think a lot of times Kyrgios looks like he doesn't care. Like, I know it's, like, his casual style of play or whatever, but I think more than usual, he actually looked like he just was out there, like, I am gonna win this match no matter what. I really don't give to me, the the yeah, sequence yeah. of points that encapsulated that best, sorry, Jamie, is in that first game of the first set, Ruben breaks Kyrgios, and then just immediately Kyrgios breaks back. And it, it looked like, you know, he starts hitting, you know, stepping into the court on the returns, taking time away from Ruben, all of those down the lines that Ruben saw wide open to him in the Kokonakis match. You know, Kyrgios has that much more pace on his forehand where Ruben doesn't have time to go down the line because he's so jammed. So yeah, the, the level, the jump between, you know, Kokonakis and Kyrgios Kyrgios was too much, I think, for Ruben's strokes to handle. But what were you saying, Jamie? Yeah, well, I was just going to you know, toss in another point that I saw that really just like highlighted that. It was like it was set point, and Kyrgios has this completely like the point completely set up and decides to go for this absolutely like janky, like half tank slice. Point. Yeah. Literally, <laughs> it is in, in my notes for the match. In my notes for the match, I have that exact yeah. moment highlighted. Yeah. And it's like, it's annoying because it's like, all right, come on, but then. In his head, he's like, oh, I'm going to win the set anyway, and, like, he did, so I guess props. But, like, it's just, it's classic curious, you know, and especially when, like you said, there is such a big gap in the level, like, he's able to get away with this and make it entertaining and have it be funny and humiliating for your opponent. So, curious. It's, like, it's like a win-win-win-win for him. Kyrgios hit a forehand down the line off of an overhead at 1-2, love 30 in the second set. That was literally, it, it's just like, he, Nick, why are you not... You know, top five he in the rocket. I just don't get him. Yeah, it was incredible. It was That's sick. literally what you try to do every time, Roth. Of course. That is what and you it aspire works one for. out of a thousand, and he can do it one out of ten, and that's why he's a pro, and that's why I played club tennis. 
<laughs> that may be fair, but I do want to ask you, Rothman, because, you know, again, Ruben gets the win over Kakanakis, but he really never had a chance in this match. So, you know, this is dating back to a conversation we had on this Winnetka recap pod. So, Jamie, I don't want you to chime in after as well. But in terms of the weapons Ruben has, in terms of the things he does well, and that would be translatable in order for him to get into the top 100, you know, whether if at the end of this year or at the beginning of next year. And to me, the things I saw was, one, you know, he moves at a very good level. Obviously, he's much smaller in stature. He's five foot nine. You know, that's that might be generous. Um, but... He's able to, you know, stay on top of the baseline. He's able to move direction of the ball so well, keep balls out of the middle third. I love his inside-in forehand on the ad side. I also think he does a good job, as we mentioned, just going down the line in general. So I guess my question to you, Rothman, we look back at our next-gen rankings when we did, you know, an episode for Noah Rubin, and we also have had the opportunity to interview him on the Cracked Interviews podcast. So if you want to hear more about him from his perspective, you know, go check that episode out. But... Getting back to my question, I guess in terms of the weapons, you know, does do you think Ruben has the game uh, has an ATP top one hundred game? Um, I don't know. As of right now, I'm not sure. I want to say yes. I think he's getting more comfortable on the tour, and that's maybe why he's getting a few more wins here and there. I mean, he clearly showed in in the previous match with Kokonakis that he can play well and hit big down the line shots, but that's where he failed in this match. He really lost any of the the big shots that he had in the previous match, and it clearly showed. I mean, he, he pretty much got demolished in this match. So, I, I don't know. Current ability maybe has improved in our rankings, uh, in the in this ranking system that we had for the, the top Americans, but I don't think for potential uh, it's changed much at all. Yeah, and, you know, one thing, I guess if you're sort of like a you know, positive on the, uh, on the Ruben train here, I think one one sort of person you could look at is someone like a Ferrer. Oh my gosh, hold on. That is the laziest that is literally I think what Rothman said verbatim on the on our preview pod of him. But sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, so great minds think line. Yeah, you know, think alike. Well, I mean it's not a hard comparison. I mean it's pretty similar, yeah. Like smaller guy, not like overtly huge weapons, but um, you know, great movers, you know, athletic is the ball. And so I think if, if you're in that camp, I think that's like sort of a beacon of hope sort of deal. Like, hey, look, he can do it. And, you know, he was chief and six left and right, too. And he still made it through. And, like, you know, good for Ferrer. But, like, I don't know. I think that's one of the things if you're Noah Rubin, you look up to and you try and, I don't know if you try and, like, model that game. I don't know if that's the right approach. But, like, just sort of knowing that that sort of frame can get you there, like, I don't know, I think that's a good thing to sort of look up to, at least moving forward, and hopefully with that and, you know, his momentum he's gaining, you know, in these smaller tournaments, hopefully that's something to sort of build up. Well, here's an even you know more obvious comparison. Diego Schwartzman, a guy who's now in the top 15, right? Similar statures, both like to take the ball early, both have interesting forehand swings, to say the least. Um you know, I think that's a guy Ruben's got to study when he's watching film, see the things Schwartzman has done to maximize his game. You see for Ruben, his obvious uh, his obvious move and tactic will be to try and go down the line. And so, yeah, you know, playing down the line tennis is risky. There's, you know, a very small margin for error. You're going, that's the highest part of the net. And so it's obviously one of the hardest, if not the hardest shot to hit. But still, I, I think it's a development for him. I think he showed, you know, he answered some questions about concerns of his size. You know, he is he plays an aggressive enough game, again, stays on top of the baseline to where... 
you, you, you think, you know, top 100 is not out of the question. He's a little bit smaller than Mackie McDonald. He doesn't volley as well as Mackie, but they do a lot of things similar from the baseline. So you have to think, Ruben, you know, things go well. He can have that sort of success moving forward. But okay, let's move on to our last match of the second round that we're going to break down. Probably the most disappointing result, particularly because in this match, Francis Tiafa was the player who had the first break in the first set of his loss to Marcos Bagdadis, which, as we mentioned earlier, Bagdadis takes out Tiafo 7-5-6-1. Um, you know, we'll talk about the tennis plenty, I'm sure, but the question I want to start with with you, Rothman, you have to wonder, in this match, Tiafo is the five seed, right? This has got to be, what, the first time he's been seeded at an ATP 250, if not the first, maybe the second? Uh, how much do you think that plays in his head, if at all? Nah, I don't think it does. I mean, he's ranked 40 in the world, and that's awesome, and he should be proud of himself and, you know, not think about the ranking and where he's seated. Um, I think the thing that could have played a factor is the fact that Baghdadis is a crazy vet. He's been on the tour forever, and, you know, sometimes it is hard to play a guy who's that much older than you because they've, you know, been around so many different types of players. But this match came down to Tiafo's serve. We've talked about in the past, you know, that is what needs to improve and is the thing where if he can be on during a match, he's going to beat a lot of people. And, and we've seen him be very successful against top players when it's been on. And not only was he was it not on this match, it was off. Like, it was terrible. He was 64% on his... Excuse me. He was 52% on first serves and he was even worse on his second serves. For his second serve points one, he was 36%. Double faulted nine times. That is, you shouldn't double fault nine times in a tournament. Nonetheless, one match. I mean, it is bad. Um, I don't know. They, I mean, I'm not one to talk about the double faults because uh, if you've seen the uh, Club Tennis National yeah, highlights, you know I ended double with three straight. Double faults three so. in a row. Never forget that. Yeah, uh, it's brutal. So I, I sympathize for that. But sorry, go ahead, Jamie. What were you saying? Um, and I mean, even if you you can look at the statistics or you can just look at this match yeah. and you can easily tell it's the serve that's making this happen. You know, it, like you're letting Baghdadis just get way too many looks. You, I mean, yeah, he converts five break points, but he has 13 opportunities. Like, Tiafo, you're winning 36% of your second serve points. Like, you have no chance. Like, you shouldn't have a chance at winning this match. And not only that. And, you know, what's... He had a lot of unforced errors, too, in this match. It, it just looked sloppy all around. Like, he, he came out of the gates, and it looked like he wasn't ready to play. I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like, in the first game, it looked like he was, you know, it looked like he was there. Right? For a I mean, second. You know, he was giving himself, for a second, right, for like one game. But then, you know, yeah, Bagdadis gets that break off a really good get, and then from pretty much there on... Uh, so you guys have talked about the serve, and I think that's fair. Obviously, the percentages, as you mentioned, Tiafo in this match only makes 52% of his first serves. As you said, 64% first serves one, which is fine, but 36 going 12 of 30, 36%, 12 of 33 on second serve points. You know, that's never going to win you a match. For me, the thing that was exposed, and we haven't talked about this in a long time, and I guess the reason I want to focus on this instead of the serve is because at Delray Beach, at Wimbledon, you know, 
We've seen Tiafo serve well. We know that he's capable of that. Everyone has bad serving days. But to me, the thing that happened in this that was most concerning, Baghdadis picked on the Tiafo forehand. That was the side he attacked during rallies. You know, the Tiafo backhand, the much more solid of the two sides. And, you know, Baghdadis really tried to get Tiafo stretched on the forehand because he knows, you know, the forehand, when Tiafo's on the run, he's going to hit forehand slices. That's one of his worst habits. Same thing, you can jam Tiafo with pace on the forehand because that backswing is so funky and I'm showing you guys right now in the video but you know it's that little wrist flick it's it's Harrison-esque which is the next match we'll talk about so I guess just in, for me the concerning thing about for Tiafo is you know we said this before in the Winneka pod the, the noticeable weakness and yeah sometimes a Tiafo forehand is so explosive but it just seems like Baghdad is really keyed in on that and obviously Baghdad can still you know hit winners from the baseline with anyone on tour so I guess I don't know Max do you think I'm too concerned about this Tiafo forehand uh, yeah I, I think a little bit he's so athletic I, I wouldn't worry that much we've seen a lot of guys with really weird technique do well in tour I think this was seriously just an off match uh, I, I think you're you're being a little too harsh on his technique here you think I'm being so I guess to me uh, and again you mentioned the the double faults and everything in the first set Tiafo does break right away but then you know when he gets broken back he hits a lot of sloppy balls where it was Baghdad would hit a big second serve return deep down the middle and then you know Francis gets jammed with the forehand sometimes he hits some dumb drop shot approach and I think when he got broken at 3-2 on the break point uh, Baghdad has tracked down a typical Tiafo drop, drop shot and hit yeah. this in, insane dinkum cross court ball that was a stupid drop shot like that's one where that's Tiafo what I'm could have just ripped it down the line so to me, exactly. It's just the, the the choices he makes on the forehand side, I'm still not that comfortable with. And then again, you know, you talk about maturity in this match. He comes out in the first game of the second set, gets broken. Uh, or I'm sorry, in the second break of the, of the first set, he hits two double faults, a loose backhand error, and then a loose forehand while on the move and just... You know, it's the type of mistakes where you've got to be a little bit sharper than that. You've got to make first serves there. And so, yeah, Francis has had a spectacular year. This is not to take anything away from him. But still, this type of performance, I guess it reminds us at home that, yeah, you know, he's still a 20-year-old kid. He's still got a little bit of improving to do. Yeah, honestly, maybe he's, like, gotten to this point where now that he's a seed, he's like, I can, like, chill. I don't care about this small (laughs) 250-point tournament. Like... He's like, I got to look forward to the Stowe Mountain Lodge Classic where I'm going to see Alex Gruskin and I got to impress the Cracked Rackets crew so I got to rest up until that. (laughs) shout out there. That was smooth. Uh, I've been working on it while you were away. But uh, yeah, I appreciate it. But okay, let's talk about some of these other second round matches because there were a few other noticeable results. You have the big man, defending Wimbledon semifinalist, John Isner, taking out young Australian Alex Dimenauer, 6-3-6-2. Ryan Harrison played Lucas Locko, and he, he wins that match 2-6-6-2-6-3. Can I just say in that match, I saw brief moments. Locko in the first set played, he looked like fed. He literally has the fed forehand. He was taking everything early. He was blowing Harrison out, and it was just... You know, the flip, it, it's just like, it's funny. You remember sometimes like, yeah, these guys are capable of incredible things, but it, there really is a gap between the top guys and then this middle tier of 60 through 80 who just can't sustain it for as long. But then, you know, again, you have uh, Misha Zira taking out Mikhail Yuzny, six four six two Number four seed, Matt Ebden taking out Donald Young, 4-4. Four and four. And then you have Cam Norrie taking out Jeremy Shardy, five seven six four six four. But so getting to our quarterfinal rounds, um, 
you know, now this part of the podcast becomes the Ryan Harrison portion because from here on in, we're going to be talking about his matches in the quarterfinals. He played what I thought was the best match of the tournament, taking out number three seed, Hyun Chung, 6'7", 6'2", 7'6". I want to start with you, Rothman, because we talked about this little pre-match, and I'm ready to get into this argument. This is the debate we wanted to have, you know, all podcast long. Ryan Harrison... Is the low-key dark horse to make some noise at the U.S. Open? Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I was saying, that, that's bold. I think this is a, a good sign of where he might be going in the future. I think he's starting to play better. And the one thing that I think would change his game, and, and maybe I'm just, I think this about all players, is I think he should be able to move in more. He's so fast. I thought you were about to say the backhand slice, and I was going to be like, dude, oh, get over well, it. Well, I have comments on his backhand, but he really does have pretty solid volleys, and he is so quick. The problem is he stands five feet behind the baseline the entire match. Well, so to me, there's two Ryan Harrisons. There's the serving and volleying Ryan Harrison, the guy who's one of like four players on tour. I think it's him, uh, Lopez, Sock, and maybe one other who are top 40 in both singles and doubles. And so when he serves and volleys, and I think we'll talk about it later on in the Cam Nori match when he started to move forward, he does have the skills to volley. But then well, there's baseline, if, I am, if you he's baseline IMG grinder Ryan Harrison, yeah. where he's 10 feet behind the baseline, and it's, it's maddening. And this match is a perfect example example of that 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 ryan harrison the 10 feet behind the baseline harrison was the first and third sets the second set was serving volley harrison and i'm gonna be aggressive and move in harrison and that's when he took it six two the fact that he won that third set honestly was a combination of just you know playing well and consistent and you know having some really good points in that tiebreaker well, here's two stats that stick out. First serve points one. Harrison wins 83%. When he makes the first serve, that's when he's serving and volleying. That's when he doesn't really have a serve plus one game. He's more of got a serve plus five or yeah. side, 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 side. And then maybe he'll move in or he'll hit a backhand slice and the point goes to neutral. But then second serve points, you know, when Chung's able to take the initiative, be aggressive from the first ball, force Harrison into that position five feet behind the baseline. Harrison only wins 49% of his second serve points, goes 19 of 39. So I guess. Jamie, um, would you do you think it's fair to say Hian Chung was the better player from the baseline in this match, and the real you know Harrison wins this match because of the first serve and because he's probably the slightly better volleyer? Yeah, I think, I think if you're watching this match, a lot of the time you think that Chung's going to pull this out because you think he's just slightly outplaying him. I, I think that was my feeling overall when I was watching this, um, except for that weirdly dominant second set. Uh, and, you know, and honestly, I did think Chung was going to pull this out. You know, he ended up not converting any of his breakpoint opportunities, which is like, you know, bummer. Like, hey, you got those opportunities, but got to capitalize sometime. Honestly, I thought this match was going to be over. Um, you know, Harrison was, I mean, he's a 5-6, love 30, has a huge outburst with it. I mean, you think it's kind of down the, down the drain and Chung's going to, you know, rein in control and finally come out on top here. But uh didn't happen, and, you know, Kudos to Ryan Harrison for pulling that out. Um, but generally, yeah, I guess I kind of had this feeling for a while that at least from the ground, Chung was going to be in control. Uh, but I guess that's just not how it happened. Harrison, you know, props to him for getting it done. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think Harrison played very well, but this was truly Chung's match to win. I, I think that he was... Completely agree. I think this was his match. He controlled most of it. 
and Harrison played well enough to stay in it. And, you know, he definitely took advantage of his opportunities. But th- this was Chung's match. If Chung had moved in a few more times, and again, I'm, I'm very caught up on this moving in aspect because I think too many players think that they can rely on their ground strokes and, and win matches. And a lot of them can because they're ridiculously good. But if some of them just learned at times to move in, like Cam Nori, who we'll get to in a little bit, I, I really think they would be a lot more successful and that this match would have gone to Chung. Well, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I really do want to hear your take. And I'm going to go to you first, Jamie, because, you know, like me, you also struggle with the forehand. And Rothman's got a little too much forehand hubris, so I don't want to hear his opinion (laughs) right now. Uh, But just in terms of, you know, game plans, point-to-point strategy, what we saw in this match, I thought Harrison really went after the Chung forehand. You know, the Chung backhand is elite. And there were times when Harrison's, you know, he's so comfortable moving side to side. And to his credit, he is a phenomenal athlete. The guy has to be a top five mover. I mean, there's no ball he quits on. He will go after everything, even if it forces him to hit, you know, a forehand slice and just get the point back to neutral. He's willing to, yeah, Jamie makes a little look at me. The forehand slice can be effective, as we talked about with Mitchell Kruger uh, in Winnetka Pod. But... Yeah, exactly. But just in terms of this match, Harrison kept going after the Chung forehand because the backswing is a little bit big because Chung, sometimes he'll go after the forehand, but that's the side that'll spray. And it's harder for him to, you know, hit balls out of the middle third with that forehand unless he can really set his body right. So I guess my question to you, Jamie, you know, Harrison wasn't able to capitalize on Chung leaving the forehand a little bit short as much just because Harrison's forehand itself can't do that much damage. Um, but I, I guess, is that really, is that your biggest concern? Because I think that's mine with Chung's moving forward, is that his forehand is a bit of a liability. And, you know, in terms of my concern, I still think he's going to be top 10, but that could be the thing that holds him back from winning a Grand Slam. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's easy to point it out as a weakness at this point, just in terms of, like, you know, the technical movements of it. Uh, I think where he gets in a lot of trouble, especially against big hitters, um, is if they're able to just pound on that side relentlessly, you know, that's where he gets into trouble because he's constantly under pressure. And, you know, one of the four times he's forced to hit, you know, a deep forehand, it might spray. Um, I think you see it a little bit. I think he's getting better at it. Uh, like last year particularly, I feel like I noticed a lot of the time when he was approaching and coming forward on the forehand side, um, it just looked a little uncomfortable. You know, he left, and it just didn't look great. Um, you know, whether that's stroke production or just he's in his head about his own forehand, I'm not sure. But uh, right when you see him moving forward, sometimes you'd see him sort of pop some of those forehands. I think that's getting better. I think his real concern now is when pressure's put, getting put on his forehand, what he's going to do to sort of combat that. Well, I think, you know, you look at the total points won in this match, Harrison 104 versus Chung's 97. As we said, the margins in this were really small. So for me, the difference in this match, the you know, the first serve points Harrison's able to win. He's able to get more free points because he really does have a nice first serve. You know, he hits 13 aces in this match versus Chung's four. Those nine additional free points, that's the difference in terms of total points. You know, winning those big moments, is, you know, they both had break opportunities. Chung goes 0 of 5 versus Harrison's two of three, you have to think that's a fluke. You have to think, you know, Chung, that's indicative of him being in more service games than Harrison. So uh, like you mentioned, Rothman, I think for Chung, 
the or, you know the consistency is there. He had the match on his racket in this instance, and it just came down to the fact that he didn't have a def- definitive weapon yet to put Harrison away, and that's why Harrison was able to stick around for so long in some of these points. Yeah, and to a point you made, and then a question you asked, first being the point that you made about him attacking Chung's forehand, I don't think he was doing that as much purposefully as he was trying to avoid a backhand match with Chung. I think think that's an excellent—sorry, that's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah, I think that one of Harrison's weaknesses is his backhand. He, every once in a while, can throw a great one down the line, and that's awesome, but for the most part, it's just kind of— loopy and spinny and and doesn't really carry through the court and I think Chung's is the opposite where he really drives his back in through the court and so I think more than he was trying to attack his forehand Ryan was really trying to avoid a a backhand match with Chung. Well, it's interesting to me because I think you're exactly right. He was trying to avoid the backhand to backhand exchanges but to me, I I think Chung... Or, or, sorry, I think Harrison can actually drive his backhand better than his forehand. I don't know, Jamie, it'd be the t- what do you think in terms of can Chung, you know, for Harrison, I feel like when he turns into his backhand, he gets more depth, more pace than on his forehand, which is literally just like a wristy karate chop. Again, it's Tiafo-esque in terms of, yeah, he can, he gets the ball in pretty well and he can get some nice depth and some nice, uh, you know, some air under the ball in terms of clearing the net. But I think... I don't know. Harrison doesn't really have a weapon to me from the ground. No, I I don't think he does. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that it's what his game has been built around is just being like a solid ground striker. You know, not necessarily anything sticking out. And yeah, he can rip big forehands, and you know, you're right. He can you know keep a shoulder turn and crank one down the line on the backhand side. But you know, like you said, he's built his game around you know being a solid ground striker, and I think sometimes it gets just a little bit too. Uh, no weapony. I'm in with that. But still, you know, for Chung, for this to be his first match back from injury or first tournament back, you know, he gets a three set uh, match under his belt. He does take out Fritz, which is a good win. Uh, he, he has to be confident about this result. He has to be feeling good moving into, you know, the the two Masters events in the summer, Toronto and then Cincinnati later on. And then, you know, he's got to be able, I think he'll have time to get enough matches under his belt to get back to that top form when it's time for the U.S. Open. And he will continue to be one of my dark horses. I think when he, you know, we saw it at the Australian Open when he made the semi. When he's playing well, it's just so hard to pass him. And physically, three out of five sets, it's so hard to last the distance with him. So if I'm him, I'm not taking too much solace in losing you know a third set tiebreaker seven six but let's move on to our semifinal match and this will be the last match we do a deep breakdown of because I think I speak for both Jamie and Rothman when I say we're sick of breaking down Isner matches there's only so much you can talk about and so yeah Rothman do you disagree with that assessment before we dive in this match I do want to mention the other quarterfinals uh you know Isner did take down Mishu Zverev seven five four six six one and Matthew Abden took down Baghdadis three and two but the notable match from this one really is Cam Nori taking down Nick Kyrgios, 7-5-3-0. As far as this match goes, obviously there's not much to talk about because it, it was a retirement. But I think there's a lot to say about the way Cam played against Kyrgios in this first set. And it, and it is something that I think is needed on tour more. And it's this, not necessarily the Mishkashverev, I'm going to come in every other point type of play, but... The, the kind of play where you are going to be a little more aggressive and make the movement in when you see your opportunity. And, and it's where I really wish that 
Harrison would take that more into his game because I think it is where he could have a weapon. Uh, you saw Nori just playing really smart against Kyrgios. He would take balls early and come in, and you know th- that is what allowed him to take that first set against Nick Kyrgios. And you know, unfortunately, it didn't carry over enough into the match with Ryan Harrison. Harrison, to his credit, played fantastic against Cam Nori. Took him down two six six three six two. That first set, I think, did go to Cam because he was aggressive, came in, took balls early. And he started to play Harrison's, you know, baseline game. And I think that is the reason that Cam lost the match to Harrison. Yeah, and I think overall, uh, you know, this is a really good match between Harrison and Nori. Uh, I, think, I think Cam looks really good for a lot of this match. But, you know, Harrison just ends up riding the momentum of getting that first break in the third set. And then from, from, from there on, it's pretty much over. Um, you know... What's interesting about this match, and, you know, we can talk about this later when we talk about, well, or now, we talk about Harrison, but we haven't talked about his score lines. Have you noticed that all of the matches... All of them three sets. He lost the first set in all of the ones that he won. And then the one that he wins the first set, he loses. So, I don't know if he's something bad. I guess he should just start tanking every first set twice, but, like, I don't know. It's just it's an interesting thing, and maybe that's just like something mentally he needs to work on. Just staying well, at a high, like consistent level. I don't know. What do you think? I think for me, physically, I mean, Harrison's the type of player who wears his opponents down. And so, obviously, he will maintain his fitness level sets one, sets two, sets three, because he has to. That's his biggest weapon on the court. So, of course, I think, you know, he's a player who the longer the match, the better it serves him. At the same time, in this match... Now, I think it's similar to the Ruben match where Nori just came out on fire. And yeah, I think that's something he carry over from the Kyrgios match, as Rothen mentioned. In the first set, Nori's hitting huge first serves. He's moving in. He's taking returns on top of the baseline because the Harrison serve looks like nothing compared to the Kyrgios serve. And so, you know, that backhand, we've argued about Nori's backhand before, Rothen. But I think the way he's able, a short, compact backswing, block balls, get it back deep and get the point to neutral. I think that's a skill that's going to translate extremely well to the ATP tour and then one you know one of the other stats i look at first serve percentage nori makes 65 percent of his first serves wins 74 percent of those points does a really good job of moving forward and picks his spots well i guess to me the concern is still the nori second serve kind of sits a little bit right rothman yeah definitely i think that's super evident in the percentages of second serve points one if you look at the stats you have harrison winning 69 percent of his second serve points and nori only winning 48 percent i mean that's a pretty large difference and whenever you see second serve points one under 50 percent you know that either the second serve is weak or you've got a really good returner who's taking advantage and so yeah i think it is something that we saw really affected nori in the match another thing you look at in this match you know break point opportunities harrison goes three of five nori goes two of seven and so they both had a bunch of chances um similarly you look at the ace double fault ratio harrison goes 8-0 on that one you know gets more free points than nori who goes three aces but has five double faults so that's again gotta beef up that second serve he started really going after but to me the stat that sticks out the most is these were lopsided sets you know two six six three six two and yet harrison in total points won 77 versus nori 75 so the margin in this match despite the score being a little lopsided you know, it was very, to me, it was very narrow. Although, are, do you think I'm wrong, Jamie? Do you think it's just Nori blew him out the first set and then Harrison closed the gap the next two? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't know. I think it's always a little bit misleading to look at total points, especially when you, I mean, like just, just simply the way tennis is scored. You know, it's like, 
sets can be blowouts, and you know it can be six oh oh six six one, and like total point. I don't know. It's like it's like a tough way to count it. I think it speaks to the fact that it was competitive. I think you're totally right there. Like generally speaking, yes, there were it was a competitive match. However, the sets generally like just not competitive in my opinion. Particularly the third set, I did not think by the end of it, and especially like midway through the third set, I didn't think it was. I think that's fair. I think if you watch this match, again, we already talked about this earlier, and Rothman made this point. You know, when Harrison decides to move in, when he makes that choice, it is amazing the jumps, you know, his game takes, the, how much easier it is for him to protect his serve. And you have to think the guy's, what, 25, 26 years old at this point? How does he not realize how much, you know, how much more beneficial it is for him to move forward that often? I mean,. A lot of guys don't learn shit throughout their career. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, look at Fritz. It's, he hasn't done anything in six months since we've told him on the Great Shot podcast that he's got to change his volleys. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's just classic. A lot of guys just don't like to change their style and I don't know. Yeah, and look, for Harrison, it's it's a credit to him because, you know, he is still top 50 in the world. You know, he has made a jump after dropping out of the rankings a few years ago now. This is a match we're going to skip over because, as I've mentioned, I've sworn to not do another instant of John Isner coverage until at least 2019. Or I guess maybe at Labor Cup we can talk about him a little more. But in the final, you have Isner taking out Harrison 5-7-6-3-6-4. You know, it's a classic John Isner match. Everything you'd expect out of it to happen did happen. And for fans who don't know, this match was actually the second year in a row these two guys have played in a final. And the reason I bring that up is because it is time for everyone's favorite segment west off cue the game show segment it's time for this week's alex's trivia you like that you like the little new sound effect we added in rothman it's actually a new one since you've left us west off came up with it i think it's the price is right one he does it <laughs> yeah I no, need to, obviously I, i'm way more excited i was gonna say i need to, to actually listen you know to hear them you know i don't <laughs> do that no i'm kidding i actually am starting to listen i just you know me, I hate listening to my own voice. I'm like you, who loves listening to his yeah. own voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I call it peer review, but nevertheless, still. Oh, so, sure. for our want. first questions, I, I, you know, I want to thank my guy again, Jonathan Kelly. Who, if if you don't go follow him on Twitter at Joe Kelly Tennis, because we do have a nice list of questions for you guys regarding this year's final. We're gonna start again. This is the second year in a row that two American men have reached the final of an ATP tournament. It's the first time the same two American men have reached the final of an ATP tournament in back-to-back years since 2010-2011. Rothman, your face makes it look like you cheated like crazy. So, Jamie, I want to go to you first. No, this Who do is, you think the two uh, men were and what tournament? I'm upset that you think I cheated because this actually came up on ESPN or whatever I was watching, they actually mentioned it because, well, here, Jamie, here's a hint. One of the guys in this match was it here i'll I'll see if you could possibly choose the other person i was gonna say no that's the thing i was gonna say um i mean this is this is isner's what fifth atlanta so i know he's the one uh i don't know who it was that he i don't know who i'm trying to think uh i I won't come up with it but i I know isner is one of them it's marty fish there you go i would not come up yeah yeah, I didn't cheat on this one, I'm Alex. Cheat you. 
I'm 100% sure that you cheated, Rothman, but it's okay. We'll let it slide. I'll move on to my next question. So this is another one to see how closely you guys have been following American tennis all year long. So this is the fifth American ATP singles title on the year. Again, we'll start, you know, you guys can do this one together, but can you name the five titles won by Americans? Well, Stevie just took Newport. So that's one. That's two. Well, this one. This is three. Atlanta, Atlanta three. Oh, yo, Isner, Isner won uh, his first ATP Miami. 1000, yeah. Miami is four, but can you name the fifth? So hold on. So, but Stevie's won two. What else what did he you, win? Which one did you name? What's your name? The Newport. He just won it. There's another one. There is another one, and it is Stevie Johnson. I don't want to give you a hit. Also, it is Houston. Good for you, Jamie. Yeah, you better give him some f***ing credit, Rothman, because at least he follows along. This is why he's gotten the permanent callback, and it's why you need to get a microphone, because my forearm is cramping. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. All right, I'll make the investment. Yeah, okay, but then, so let's move on to our next question. So, Ryan Harrison in in Atlanta reaches both the singles and doubles final, and funny enough, he actually lost both finals. But my question to you, four other players, or sorry, three other players on tour this year have made the singles and doubles final of the same ATP tournament. Can you name any of them? And two of them happened very recently. I mean... No, probably not. Think. Okay, what guys? Jamie, anything? You're the lifeline. Okay, so you're you're gonna say what guys play singles and dubs, right? Yeah, that's obviously a hint. Like the only people I can think of are like Zverev and. That's really dumb of you because Zverev does not play doubles. But try again. Mishka, he plays some dubs. Mishka. No, it's 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 neither zero. I'll give you a, all right. I'll give you the. Oh nationality. wait, wait. You, know, you know who does? You know who does play dubs is uh, Verdasco, but he, he you're a cheater. I know you're a cheater. That, that I know one, it. that one I saw earlier in the in the outline. <laughs> but I actually have no idea who the other two are. All right, Verdasco and Rio de Janeiro, then two Italians, Fabio Fognini and Bastad, and then Matteo Berrettini and Gustad. Fognini plays dubs. I didn't even know that. Dude, Fognini can do whatever he wants, especially when he's playing. Oh, dude, I've yeah, seen him. Yeah, uh, actually, I, I saw him play, what, oh, what time was that? That he played with, what was that dude, like, growing years? I don't know how to say his name, whatever. Uh, he played with him, and, like, instead of Fognini just absolutely smashing a racket, it was his partner. I thought that was hilarious, because usually you see Fabio on the court, and you think, like, he's going to absolutely murder a racket, and it's his partner, and he has to act like the same calm one. It's like, what the <laughs> Like, how do you take him seriously? But anyway. No, I, 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 that was a really good story, Jamie. I was listening very closely. So, hey, great hey, shot to you. I don't care. <laughs> no, West, I'll leave it in because I actually want to hear what he said when I go back and listen to this. But, okay, my last trivia question for you guys. Ryan Harrison, with this final, is now tied for sixth place amongst ATP players born 1992 or later in terms of ATP finals reached. So he is tied for six. I'm going to ask you guys to name the five players in front of him, and then I'll give you the players he's tied for with. So he's tied with Chorich, Zumer, and Schwartzman. But can you name the five players, again, born 1992 or later, who have made more finals than Ryan Harrison? Well, okay, so it's very yeah. off the bat. 
Yeah, those are the two easy um, ones. Sock. Is Sock after 92? Sock yeah. is 92, Sock. and yet, incredibly, okay. he is in fourth place with eight. Again, team 17, Zverev 13, Sock in fourth with eight. There's a guy who's third and a guy who's fifth, and it, it the third place is going to shock you. I think oh, you'll guess the fifth well, place. Yeah, Kyrgios is easy five or easy third or fifth. I don't know okay. which one. Kyrgios, fifth place. Oh, fifth, so there's an unexpected third. Well, Kyrgios is a cheater. I mean, Rothman is a cheater. Kyrgios is not. I'm sorry, Nick, but I, I don't trust any of Rothman's answers. So, yes, Kyrgios, fifth. Can you name the third place? At this point, you might as well just look. It's so small. Oh, How do you expect me to actually cheat on this? I'd have to zoom that's in ex- so far. <laughs> I love that in bold it says, unless your name is Alex, do not look. Dude, I mean, I'm really I'm zoomed in to like 180% to see these answers. So, <laughs> um, Well, the answer wow, is Luca third place. Pui. I know, right? The Frenchman who is sneaky solid. Am I, I wrong? Think, I don't think of him as that young. I don't know why. Was he, was he Nin- like I mean, he, uh, 1992, December 31st? Like, is he, <laughs> you mean 1991, I think was 91. what you meant for the joke. But no, um, he, um, he, um, no he was born 94. Um, in terms of age, I think it goes... Yeah, he Pui's only a year older than me. Weird. I know, which is crazy. Luca's been around for a while, so good for him. But well, yeah, give it a year, you'll be right there. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this: Luca has significantly better hair than I do, which is impressive for a guy one year my senior. Um, but you know, moving on in terms of the other notable tournament results since Wimbledon. You know, nothing too crazy for us to talk about, particularly because we like to focus on the Americans. Again, we said this earlier, shout out to Steve Johnson for for taking home the title in Newport. You know, a fun fact for you guys, Americans have won five of the seven ATP tournaments held in the U.S. and are 0 for 37 everywhere else. I mean, that to me is, people say America is not a good home court advantage for tennis. I, I think that stat proves otherwise. And then, you know, you look at other results in Umag. A uh, fun match. Andre Rublev making his comeback from injury takes out Felix Ogier Alassim, 6'4, 6'7, 6'3. In that tournament, Chechenato, a guy who came through during the French Open, wins the tournament. You have in Sweden, Fognini taking a title over Gasquet. You have Berrettini in Switzerland taking a title over Bautista Gut, and in the process, becoming the first player since 2009 to win an ATP title at, the fir- at his first ATP quarterfinal appearance. And then last but not least, you have Nicolas Bastelis-Vili taking out Leonardo Mayer, 6'4", 0675, to become the first player from Georgia, the country, not the state, Rothman, to win an ATP title. Um, yeah, so, you know, a, a lot of results there. Again, shout out to Stevie because, you know, it's funny. He now has uh, four titles in his career, none of them on hard court, all of them either on grass or on clay, which is, you know, not what you would project for someone like Stevie. But okay, with that, you know, Rothman, I can see your face. You look exhausted. Oh, no, you have something to say. What up? Yeah, I was going to say, before, before we move on to the finals, which I wasn't that impressed with, um, I, I think there's one thing that I wanted to mention that I've seen consistently throughout this tournament and, and maybe it's something that I just haven't paid attention enough to until I started looking at stats, but I feel like a lot of guys are double faulting more than I would have expected. And maybe that's... Is this Atlanta? Yeah. And maybe maybe that's <laughs> just this tournament, but like I'm not sure if there's a trend on tour where guys are trying to hit bigger second serves because they don't want... Uh, the returners just teeing off, but I feel like I've been paying attention to the double faults more, and I feel like guys double fault way more than than I would expect. I, I don't feel like I double fault 
over four times a match. So they definitely. <laughs> oh, here we go. I mean, my serve is here amazing. Here we go. So that, that here could be we thing go. Too. There it is. It it only took us what an hour twenty minutes to get to you saying how good your serve is. So no shock there. Um, but yeah, I, I I mean I don't I don't know. I don't think I saw any particular trend. I think certain guys served particularly poorly in certain instances but i i don't know if there's any growing trend that's definitely something i guess i'll have to look into a little bit further uh jamie any thoughts on that no trend or can i move on to the changeover chat what's what's more likely to be a trend people double faulting more or the curse of six one uh well you gotta go with double fault simply because the curse of six one isn't real however double faulting <laughs> four times in a pro match isn't that much so, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. If you're hitting eight aces, you know. Fair but okay, with that said, it's time for that part of the podcast. It's time for everyone's favorite segment of the show. Fligner, cue the drum roll, please. Give me a little... Am I not going to get a drum roll from you, Rothman? Sorry, I, I, I got distracted. You took too long. That's... You've got the ADD of someone. See, this is why we've got. This is why you're out. This is why we bring in Jamie Matt. But I'm just kidding. Fligner, cue the drum roll, please. It's time for this week's changeover chat. The changeover chat. See, that's exactly how I need to hear it. That note, as always, sung beautifully. But okay. Um, I think I think I need to bring this one in because I this is something that I love to to do and also watch because it is right, there's nothing. It's all you. This segment, take us home. There's nothing better than seeing a guy just lose his shit on court and smash his racket, yell at an umpire. So this week's changeover chat is our top five favorite blowups from players on tour in tennis history. It can be from. The 1900s all the way up until today, uh, and I, I want to hear. I want to hear <laughs> the Jamie. 1900s. <laughs> I was gonna say the early 1900s, but I didn't want to sound like a jack. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, but, I, I want to hear Jamie's uh, top five first. You can you can walk us through all of them or or just one at a time. But uh, but go ahead. I'm yeah, curious. And, and I'll be I'll be honest. I did look at the list on the. Uh, on the outline, so I tried to avoid those, so so we could get a little variance in this. But one of my favorite ones, and I think you have to mention, just because it made him look crazy, was Usney when he absolutely bashed the rabbit. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was playing out macro, and he just absolutely, you know, he misses like a routine ball, and you know, he looks like uh, pissed about it, and then he just looks to the, he looks to the right, and then just bashes his racket against his head. Has to stop playing for a little bit to get it patched up because he's just gushing blood from the floor. I, I had that That's in mind too. It, that was one of mine. It's a great one. If you haven't seen that video yet on YouTube, that's a must see. Immediately so, so one thing, that, is, he, one thing we're gonna do gosh. for our for our listeners, we're gonna take uh, a, at least the ones that we can find just single clips of, um, or if some of them are in a video, we'll we'll post the link to some of these in our bio for for this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. totally done. Much like we did with the matches for Weneka. Yeah, that's one of my favorite. Do you want to alternate, Rothman? I mean, this is your changeover chat, so y- you can make the rules here. Oh, sure. Yeah, we can alternate. That'll be fun. Um, so I was going to do the Usney one because that, that's great. Uh, I think my favorite one, and, and this is a pretty popular one, but is the the Baghdadis where he just took out four rackets in a row and smashed them. He, <laughs> Another one I forgot yeah, about. Yeah, he, oh. he, he's playing Stan Wawrinka and... <laughs> 
and he uh, he's walking over, smashes one, sits down, kind of yells in his towel, takes out another racket, smashes it, takes out the third one, looks at it. The crowd starts cheering, and he starts doing the whole, like, let's go, crowd, getting them hyped, smashes the third oh, one. Yeah. And, then, uh, and, then, and then I think he did a fourth one also, but it, it was awesome. My favorite part. My favorite part about that clip is that when he's smashing them, when he's sitting down, he's Crazy point to make too, because if you yeah, watch I, the I, end, Benoit smashes his racket. He like basically gives up on the last serve, and then he throws his racket, and he goes up to Baghdadis at the net, and they basically like boy out, and he's like, "Dude, totally understand yeah. how you're pissed. Like, I respect it." <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, it was great. Well, then, my first one on the theme of racket smashing, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but I, I, it was some random tournament. Dimitrov in a match for Schwartzman. Three-cent match. Goes down 5-0 in the third. Breaks five racket strings. I think it's all in the course of, if not the match, then in the third set alone. So it's it, it, he has a break point. He, uh, he breaks another string. It's the fifth one. So the point goes to Deuce now in the game. It's 5-0. Deuce, he's down. And instead of going to pick up a new racket, he goes to his rackets, lines up two of the broken ones, and just hammers them away with the racket that has the new broken string, cracks two of the rackets, takes a huge swat with the third, cracks the third, and then just shakes the line judge hand and says, I'm done. And just calls off the match. He's just like, these rackets. So for me, that's number five. Um, Number four, I'm curious where, because Jamie, you said this was number one. I don't know how you didn't have this higher up. Shapovalov, when he hits the ball at the line judge and he takes him out of the eye. That was different to me because that, that in my mind, isn't like the blow up. Oh, what do you mean? He lost his composure so badly he smacked him. He wasn't aiming at the line judge. I don't know. To me, that was just like, he was a different, what, was he 16 at the time? 17? Something like that. How old is he now? 12, 13? 16. (laughs) And he was just trying to absolutely, I mean, he's probably never done it before, so he's probably just bashing it out of the stadium and just doesn't pay attention and ends up slugging the ref. It's a a miracle that that got rid That ball was going 100 miles an hour. Like, that was absolutely insane. I remember watching that, and you you could tell immediately he just, he had no idea how to react. He was just like, holy shit. But so to me, I don't count it in the same category, because it wasn't like a full, like, breakdown, smashing rackets, yelling. Like, he was just trying to pop it out of the stadium and ends up popping it in the head of a, I don't know, it was rough. It was rough all the way around. Just imagine being just imagine being a 16-year-old kid, like, trying to make your name. You're Everyone's saying you're Canada's next big thing, and that is what happens. It's just, like, unbelievable. Another one to me that sticks out clear as day. I remember exactly where I was when Jersey Janowitz was playing Sam Devdivarman at the U.S. <laughs> Open. He did the, how many times? How many times? And he goes, it's no fun to play like this. How many times? That's and he literally just, one. he lost. He lost I mean, so yeah, like th- that. Um, 
I mean, Kyrgios telling fans to shut the f*** up is always funny to me, and so I think of that Miami semifinal as well. I'm surprised. I don't know, I'm surprised no one's brought this one up, because I think this is, like, actually the most classic one, is the McEnroe Are You Serious? Like, that is, like... No, but... I. That's typical Rothman doesn't do the actual research, so he goes with the cliche. No, I'm saying that I think that has – that's not even – you don't even need to do research. I think like you actually – if you were to seriously rank them, that is the most classic blow-up of all tennis history. Oh, yeah. It's the most well-known one, but I think it's also the most pedestrian. So like, I, wow, yeah. okay. Well, if you want, if you want a, a, a non – Okay, yeah, that was no, one I was gonna bring up in his match against Chilich. That one is actually like kind of messed up. You know, he kicked the the board and it like actually injured a line judge. Like that was pretty bad. How many times? Yeah, he's still how many on the times? It's no fun to play like this. No, the best is after that. After everything, the line judge goes code code violation. Janowitz and Janowitz <laughs> looks at him and goes for what? He's like, what did I do? And it, it's literally like, no, you f***ing idiot. Like, you were literally screaming for like 15 minutes straight. And so that, I also want to give a shout out to Victor Troisky, who is a f***ing nut job. Like, he takes is. the camera from the cameraman and goes, and he's like, here, let me show you this mark on the clay court. As though the line judge person is going to see it. And like, tried to show a little clay court mark and literally showed nothing. And like, it was just... It was hilarious. And at one point, he literally goes to a line judge. He's like, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you are very stupid. <laughs> and it's just like, it's, it's it's unbelievable. And so those are my five. I don't know. Did one, I miss any? Well, one other classic that like I didn't even have, but you, you should always kind of include is the Serena yelling at the line judge saying, I'm going to uh. shove a ball down your throat. You, you kind of have to throw that in there. That's pretty wild. Wait, when you made your list, did you just YouTube biggest blowups and go through? Because that's what I did. I, I did. I did to see if there were any like randos. I found a couple that that were pretty crazy. Like I don't know if you know about the Jeff Tarango Wimbledon one where he actually just oh, sounds yeah. like a Classic. baby, like whining at the line <laughs> yeah. judge. If you haven't to seen fair, this, that line ju- To be fair, that um was corrupt. Yeah, uh, and never, never like was in the chair for another match after that. Well, that's, so I give him a little bit of a pass, but yes, he was whining. Yeah, it was, it was way too. Can much I also whining. say? Another dark horse candidate is just Tiafo and Kruger. Even though it wasn't really a blow up, but when someone's f***ing behind their match and they could hear it, and like <laughs> Kruger skies a ball at the house and Tiafo like screams, "It's not that good!" And like, or there's like, there's no way it could be that good. Which you know that. might say, so- yeah, which might say something about Tiafo that we didn't want to know. But you know, he's it's still it, it, it was an all time blow up. What about two just recently, Donaldson and Monte Carlo? That was weird. Dude. Oh, dude. Donaldson's such a though. really weird. Oh, he did just kind of. He absolutely got in the ref's face. That was bizarre. It was like kind of out of nowhere. And then they showed the Hawkeye of it, and it was just dead on the line. It was hilarious. (laughs) But Donaldson had a point, though. The the ref wouldn't give him, like, the ump wouldn't give him a line, like, a ball mark. He's like, oh, I don't see it. But it was there. It was in. (laughs) So I'd be pretty pissed, too. But, like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it was, that's just a recent one. I think one that's funny for me is it's not it wasn't like the most massive blow up but like if you haven't seen this you got to check this out it's Djokovic against Monfils in uh, Davis Cup where oh, and he slaughters the racket the match, but Monfils on the run after this huge rally hits one it's got to be like scorching 110 down the line but it's dead in the corner Djokovic just looks at it and then just takes his racket straight to the ground and hits it harder than I've ever seen anyone smash a racket before in my life 
Yeah, that, that's a good one. The, it's a classic. I have a few other oh, cool. notables that are that are worth mentioning, and and we can talk about this forever. So I'll, I'll make these quick. But uh, there's a video of Fed smashing his racket in the, at Indian Wells, and it wasn't I, a big deal. I was going to say that that's the like, dark horse. That yeah, is the dark horse candidate. See, Fed smash more. a racket is actually absurd. So I, I, I had more. to bring that up as a notable. Two other ones. There's a match where Nick Almagro played Thomas Burridge at the Australian Open, and he, and he came up for a shot and ripped a ball. And, like, you know, he maybe could have hit it away from him, but it hit Burdich in the arm. And afterwards, Burdich wouldn't shake his <laughs> hand. And I don't know if you could consider it a blow-up, but, like, the whole crowd booed him. He was such a baby for the rest of the match. Um, so I had to throw that in there. And then there was How one— about- Hold on, before I let you sorry, one, one more. Oh, what happened? No, I, I'm I'm gonna do now. What about when Coconut <laughs> or when Kyrios was playing while Rinka and he said Coconut is f- your girl? That's a bad one. That's a bad one. That's a that's another. Clip. We're ta- now we're just getting into drama. Know. This is just tennis drama. Yeah, or now. I'll tell you the most emotional I've ever felt is when Murray lost Wimbledon to Fenner. I was like, I'm getting closer, <laughs> and started crying a little bit. That to me was a blow up. Oh God. Well, one one other fun one that I just. I, I was looking back at some videos. Uh, Roddick was playing a match, and I, and I forgot <laughs> where it was. But he uh, he threw his racket down. He's walking back to his seat, and he looks up at, at the chair, and he goes, Hey, have you given me a warning yet? And he goes, No, not yet. And then he just takes a racket to the bench and hits it again, breaks the bench. And uh, then he got the point penalty. That was, that was classic. You know, making sure first that he hasn't gotten the warning. And then he took it out on the chair. It was, it was nice. No, it's genius. I actually, though, you know, we have – we wanted to do the favorite siblings. But I think we should actually save that for the City Open when we're talking about the Zverev matchup because it makes more sense then. So I want to end with one last question, though, for you, Rothman. This is from last week's Changeover Chat. And it was an idea Fliegner and I had. And, if, if you know, we, we divided it where it's uh, – Jamie represents Team Europe and the original GSP crew is going to represent Team World. And our th- – theory was rather than give the sixth spot to an actual player we're gonna give it either to Nelbandian, Hewitt or Soderling and just try and get in the heads of Nadal and Fed what do you think of that strategy I love that I'm definitely taking <laughs> like, Soderling imagine Soderling yeah but fuck it <laughs> Soderling's our coach then, and we have Nelbandian play fed. Like, I love Nelbandian it. lining up. At, that's what I'm saying. It would be f***ing sick. Oh, I'm all in on that idea. Someday. I appreciate I just wanted to hear. Yeah, I wanted to hear your confirmation. But all right, you know, Rothman, Jamie, as always, I want to thank you both for taking the time to do this. Obviously, there were a lot of great matches in Cincinnati and a lot to talk about. And we certainly did talk quite a bit on this podcast. But thanks to you both. Uh, Rothman, in terms of, you know, City Open podcast, we'll see you on there as well, right? You're not yes, going to disappear on us? I'm back. I, You're back I, now, full time? I've got a nice new setup in my room. Got a little studio action going on. So uh, you can count on me to being back here. No, oh, I like to hear it. And what about you, Jamie? Have you been watching the City Open? Did you see Ruben take out Isner today? It's good stuff. I know I hate to relish in seeing an American lift, but I'm done with John Isner for a while. So <laughs> yeah. that one was a little exciting for me, quite honestly. 
I definitely need to defrost. And, you know, again, we apologize for any technical difficulties in this podcast. We are still trying to get the audio. This is Rothman's first recording from California and with the double recording plus Jamie on speakers. We're still trying to figure everything out. So there may be a few bumps in this one, but no, you know, we'll continue to get better moving forward. And the reason we're able to do that and the last thank you all I want to give is to, as always, our super producers, Max Fligner, Daniel Westoff, who have a f- of a job to do and who make us sound so much better than we actually are. But... One last time, for myself, Alex Gruskin, for my wonderful co-hosts whose faces I got to see this entire time, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman and James Falsta mcdonald for our super producers, Max Fliegner, Daniel Westoff, Rothman, Jamie, what do we say to our fans? Hey. Hey. Great shot. Great shot. <laughs> I love it, and we will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.